Today, Pastor Javen shares the story of Christmas through the eyes of the wise men and the three gifts they brought Jesus. So take a moment now and prepare your heart for today's service. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born, King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he called together all the chief priests and teachers of the law and asked where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Well, Merry Early Christmas! <laughs> we are so glad that you are with us today as we are taking this Sunday as our Christmas services to celebrate the birth of Jesus. We will be uh, having a Christmas Eve service this Saturday, which is Christmas Eve from 10 to 11 a.m. So if you're not traveling for the holidays, going off to see family some uh, in another town, another city, if you're home for the holidays, uh, being this your home, we'd love to have you join us this Saturday from 10 to 11 for a time of worship and communion together on Christmas Eve. Uh, and then next Sunday, we won't be on campus. Um, so we're celebrating today as our Christmas services. This reading that you just uh, heard on the screen this morning, it comes from one of the disciples of Jesus. Uh, it was a guy who was a tax collector. And Jesus transformed his life. He changed him. And who he was as a tax collector, who he was as a person before Christ was different. It was Matthew. And so Matthew, some 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, wrote this biography about the life of Jesus. And of course, starting with his birth. And it's interesting to me that Matthew tells the story of the birth of Jesus by pointing to the wise men who came to visit him. The, the Magi is this translation that was shared in the video, or they were also astrologers. These guys, we've said here in the last couple of weeks, these guys were people who were from probably an area near Babylon along the Euphrates River. And they were probably guys who, most likely guys who were brought up under the same line as Daniel, who was a wise man himself, who had been made 
the leader of wise men under the king when they were taken captive by that time. And these guys probably had the prophecies of Daniel. Those prophecies specifically that we see in the book of Daniel, chapter 7 through 12. And they would have known these stories about the coming of this king of the Jews. And so these astrologers followed a star that was in the sky, leading them to in that time to what they believed the time that this king was born. And it led them to the area of Jerusalem and they were eventually led to Bethlehem and they just kept following this star, trying to find the birth of the king of the Jews. Now it's, I think it's kind of obvious that these guys didn't show up on the night of Jesus's birth. Um, these, these guys probably showed up a little bit later because they had to travel a long way. It's said that they would have traveled some 900 miles just to see the birth of this baby. And they didn't travel the same way we travel today. Their travel was a lot different, right? So it took them a lot longer. So it's one thing to to come to a place and bow down and kneel at a precious little baby and recognize this baby, right? It's another thing to bow down at a toddler that's running all over the place and you can't get them to stay still, right? Anybody had a toddler before? Now it might be weird for you to think of Jesus as a toddler, but he was, he was a toddler. He, he grew up just like any other baby would, would grow up. And, and Matthew uses a word that when the wise men came to Jesus and they found Jesus, he uses a word, he says, their home, their dwelling. That's, that was a different word than what Luke uses when he talks about the birth of Jesus. When Luke talks about the birth of Jesus, he uses the word that we famously know, the manger, the stable, an area that animals would have been. And in fact, Jesus used that same word when he was teaching those around him. And he talked about how, where they tie up their donkeys and, and their horse. That's, that's the same word Jesus used when it was used by Luke to describe where he was born. Matthew uses a different word. So it was a dwelling place. They were in a home at this point when Jesus came, when the Magi, the wise men came and found Jesus. And I know that all of our manger settings and all of our Christmas plays, if you have a child, it's possible your child might've played one of these in a Christmas play at some point in time. The, the wise men in the manger scene, the wise men in the Christmas plays, there's, there's how many of them? There's always three, right? Because that's what we know. The song tells us we three kings of Orient are, but history tells us that when wise men traveled, they traveled in bunches. They didn't travel just in, in, in these small little groups. Now that doesn't negate the beauty of the manger scene. Okay. That doesn't negate our, and, and make our Christmas plays and, and those types of things, uh, irrelevant and fallacies and lies. It still gives us the picture of what's happening all around the birth of Jesus. But the reason we get three is because there's three gifts that these wise men brought, right? That's what Matthew tells us. And each one of these gifts were significant. They were significant in what they meant about Jesus. That first gift that Matthew tells us that they brought, that gift of gold, that was the gift for royalty. It was a gift for a king. And so when they came to the house and they knelt down at this toddler and they gave him this gift, they were honoring him and they were recognizing him as the king of the Jews. That's what they told those in Jerusalem when they stopped. Matthew tells us to ask, where can we find the king of the Jews that's been born? That's what their whole pursuit was about. Their whole pursuit was about finding and pursuing this king. 
And so they found him and they worshiped him and they honored him as king. And they offered him gold to signify, we know you are a king. And so the thing about this king though, was where most kings live sovereignly unto themselves. They're not accountable to anyone. Jesus Christ grew up as king and he lived his life for others, completely surrendered to the will of God. A great example for us. And the the great thing about Jesus as king is he didn't come for just to be served, but he came to serve. He didn't come just to receive gifts unto himself. He came to be a gift. In fact, Jesus told Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And that was Jesus. So that no one would perish, but everyone could have everlasting life. And the great thing about this king is that he didn't just come to bring salvation to a group of people. He came and he was salvation personified. This king is a king of indescribable goodness, of incomprehensible power, of irresistible grace. He's the king that the psalmist describes as the king of glory. He's the king that we should open up our life to and let this king in and live for and follow him. But he wasn't just a king. He was also a high priest. And so this is why the wise men gave this gift of frankincense because the gift of frankincense represented Jesus as high priest. Frankincense was what the high priest that we read about in the Old Testament, the the high priest of the Jewish community, when they would go and they would make the offerings and they would make the sacrifices for the Jewish community for their sins and they would offer up prayers for the people and for the body of people, they would take this frankincense and they would mix it with the oil that was used to cleanse their bodies, to purify them, to be able to enter into the presence of God because not just anybody can do it. These high priests who represented and mediated between the community and God would go in and do that. And these wise men were saying, we realize this is who Jesus is. He is our ultimate mediator. He is the one that would stand in the place between all of man and God. And when the author of Hebrews would write that because of what Jesus, the high priest did, When he died on that cross and the curtain in the temple was ripped in two, no longer there being a most holy place that only the high priest could enter in. Now the great high priest has opened up that place, opened up the throne room of God, opened up the presence of God to everyone. And the author of Hebrews tells us that we can now enter boldly into that presence. And when we hear that and when we think about it, we think, yes, I get to enter into the presence of God. I get to tell him all of my needs. I get to tell him everything that's on my heart. And that is true. That's the loving father that we have. But what we need to understand is the main thing that he's talking, that the author of Hebrews is talking about. And what we need to realize that we have the ability to do now is we personally, individually have the ability to come boldly into the presence of God, carrying all of our sin. Nobody has to do it for us now because Jesus has already done it. 
Nobody else, no other man has to do it. Jesus has already done it. And he took away everything else that stood in the way of you and me entering in the presence of God. And so now I can come boldly into his presence, even with my sin and say to God, like Isaiah did at the beginning of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter six, I am a man of unclean lips. I am a sinner and I need you to cleanse me. Jesus, our high priest did that. He made it possible for us to be able to enter into the presence of God. But then these wise men, they brought a third gift and it was a gift of myrrh. Myrrh was something that was used in embalming. Now, when, when I say myrrh, for some reason, it makes me think I'm a country, right? Country people, myrrh, because we live in America, right? But myrrh, myrrh was a gift that was used for embalming when someone died. Jesus, or or John, who was also a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, he wrote his account. It's the fourth book in the Gospels that we see. He was writing about after the death of Jesus and he was going to be buried. See, history tells us that most bodies, everybody that was crucified was taken off of that cross and just thrown into a pile with other bodies. But there was a man by the name of Joseph. He's described as Joseph of Arimathea. And John tells us that he, that Nicodemus, who I mentioned just a second ago, came with Joseph of Arimathea. Nicodemus was this, was, was a religious teacher. He was a Pharisee. He was one that came to Jesus. I mentioned that John, and John chapter three tells us about this. He went to Jesus to, to find out more from him about this kingdom that he's come about. To get a greater understanding because Nicodemus apparently realized there's something about this guy that really is different. And so he determined that somewhere along the way, this Jesus was worth following. So he comes with Joseph of Arimathea to the tomb that Joseph of Arimathea purchased so that Jesus' body wouldn't get thrown in with everyone else. Joseph purchased this tomb. Matthew tells us that Joseph was a rich man. We'll see why it's important to know that in just a minute. But look at what John tells us that Nicodemus came with Joseph with. John chapter 19. With him came Nicodemus, the man who had come to Jesus at night. He brought about 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. He brought this because he was bringing this myrrh to embalm the body of Jesus in this tomb. So what these wise men were pointing to were they were saying, we understand and we realize that you are the suffering servant, the lamb of God, the one that the prophets were talking about was gonna come for the forgiveness of man's sins and make a way for all mankind. I want you to look with me to a prophecy from Isaiah. This was 700 years before the birth of Jesus. It's on Isaiah chapter 53. We're going to start at verse 6. He wants to see what the prophet is saying. He says, all of us like sheep have strayed away. 
we have led God, left God's paths to follow our own. Now he's talking to all of those in Israel, but this can be related to us as well. We're going to see Jesus make this reference in just a moment. But he says, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. This person that the prophet is talking about, the sins are being laid. The sins of everyone are being laid on this pan. He was oppressed, treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong. He had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. And he was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper him in his hands. The first thing I want us to notice in this passage where the prophet is speaking is he says, we're all like sheep. We're like sheep. Now we hear that about sheep and we think, oh, I don't mind that. Sheep are, you know, they're cute little animals, right? They're cuddly. They got all this pretty little fur on their back. They're nice. They're sweet little things. Um, But the thing about sheep, being called a sheep, that wasn't necessarily a compliment. Because sheep are weak, witless, and wayward. (laughs) They, They can't defend themselves. In fact, typically when a sheep falls over on its back, it can't even get itself back up on its feet, right? They can't think for themselves and they typically just follow the crowd of sheep around them, wherever they're going, wherever they're being led. There's an interesting news story. This comes from 2005 and it's true because I don't want you to think I'm making it up. I brought a clipping or an image from the BBC that talks about this. They estimate about 1,500 sheep followed one right after the other off a cliff. Now that's sad, isn't it? You think about these sheep, just one right after the other, walking one right behind the next. What are you thinking? Do you not see something happening to the people or to the sheep in front of you? They're like, where where do they go? They just disappear. You know? What's going on? Does someone not in that cattle? Are sheep called cattle? No, I don't mean, herd. There's someone, is there one sheep in that herd thinking, this is weird. But the, the news tells us that only about, they estimate about four to 500 of them died. And it was the first ones that plummeted for obvious reasons. They died. But then the next thousand to 1100, whatever was left, didn't. And I won't say what I said in the first service because apparently it was insensitive because I heard a lot of groans that I, when I said it. But they, they, they fell off. They didn't die because there was a nice pillowy cloud of sheep right under them when they fell. They, they didn't have ground to land on. But sheep are wayward. They just follow wherever the crowd is going. But the thing about these sheep, they weren't 
invaluable. They had a lot of value to them. Even though they're weak, witless, and wayward, they had a lot of worth. Because this news article tells us that the owners of these sheep lost 42,000 pounds of value in their currency whenever these sheep went off the cliff. See, Matt and Jesus, when in Matthew, Jesus looks out over a crowd of people. Matthew tells us this. In chapter 9, he says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Because they were what? They were confused. They were helpless. They were like what? They were like sheep without a shepherd. And this is what the prophet is saying. 700 years before the birth of Jesus, he's pointing out, nation of Israel, you are like a sheep without a shepherd. Jesus, when he's walking on this earth and he's teaching and all these crowds of people are coming up to hear everything he's having to say. Jesus looks out at this crowd of people. He has compassion on them. He hurts. That word compassion is a word that means that you are moved in your gut. In other words, it's saying that Jesus, he, he had pain inside of him because of the hurt and the agony he felt because of who, what he was looking out at. He's saying this crowd of people, they're just being pulled along. They're lost. They are sheep without a shepherd. And you might say to me, Javen, I'm not weak. I worked out yesterday. I ain't weak. I'm not witless. You calling me dumb? Waver, don't nobody tell me what to do. Listen, when it comes to sin, we are all defenseless to sin's power on our own. We're all like sheep when it comes to sin. We can't think straight. When we're living in a life of sin, all we think about is that sin. We tend to follow everyone around us. When it comes to sin, we're weak, we're witless, and we're wayward. And we are inclined to follow our selfish, sinful nature more than we are finding something that brings us true life. As the old hymn says, prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Even as a follower of Christ, there's still that nature in us. That's what Paul talked about in Romans chapter seven. Why do I do the things I don't want to do? The things I want to do, I don't do. Because that flesh, there's that battle in our life every day of our flesh telling us, no, go do this. But the spirit of God in us saying, no, 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 no. There's a battle. There's a tension prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God of love. But just like the song says earlier, and just like the word of God teaches us, Jesus sought me when a stranger. Before I even come to realize the goodness of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Before I even obtained that, before I even attained that knowledge, Jesus sought me when I was a stranger. And he rescued me from danger interposed by the precious blood of God. The prophet Isaiah 700 years before any of this would happen is pointing to the fact that this innocent one, this, this baby born of a virgin 
because it's not born of anyone else. It's the Son of God. We grow up and become a suffering servant who would give his life. He would be unjustly condemned, as the prophet said, led away, nobody caring the fact that he was going to die without descendants because that was important. He was struck down for the rebellion of all of God's people in that nation of Israel who had been rebelling against God, unable to truly follow Yahweh. He had done no wrong, never deceived anybody, the prophet says, but he was crucified like a criminal with criminals. And even on the cross, he looks at one of those criminals who in his last moments is repenting to Jesus and recognizing Jesus for who the wise men recognized him as at his birth. The cross sees him for who he, the, the thief on that cross sees Jesus for who he is. And he asks this Jesus to forgive him of all of his sins. He's saying, look, I realize I'm being held accountable for everything I've done on this earth. In my, in, in this death of me being crucified. But for my soul, Will you forgive me and my soul? And Jesus looks at him on that cross while he's dying and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's the forgiveness, the mercy, the love, the grace, and the goodness of God and of Jesus. And this is what Jesus did. This is who he was. He wasn't a king who just wanted others to sacrifice on his behalf. He was a king who came to sacrifice for all of humanity. He wasn't a high priest that was just going to make a sacrifice for people. He was the high priest who became the sacrifice, the last and final sacrifice for all. The author of Hebrews says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away the sins of man. So what was being done that we read in history of all that was being done in the nation of Israel, of these, of, of these sacrifices that were being made, the whole purpose of them was to point to the coming of Jesus Christ who would become the ultimate sacrifice for all of man's sins. And the prophet says that it was the Lord's good plan for this to take place. Some translations say it pleased him for this to take place. When we read that, we might think it was a pleasure or enjoyment. Like, is God sitting up there going, you know, that kind of thing. No, that word, that's not what that word means in, in this writing from Isaiah. It plainly means purpose because God knew, he knew man was going to fall. He knew the enemy was going to bring deception. He knew man in its weakness would fall. And so he made a plan for man's redemption, for man's restoration. And that plan was coming through Jesus. The wise men gave him gold because he was a king worthy to be worshiped and worthy to be honored as king. They gave him frankincense because he was a high priest who deserved to be trusted as the mediator. And they gave him myrrh because he was 
the spotless lamb of God who would be our sacrifice and he would be a lamb worth following. John the Baptist, when he was teaching and he was baptizing people and Jesus had grown up, he'd become a adult at this time. He comes walking out over the hill. John the Baptist sees him as he teach, as he's teaching. He stops and he looks at Jesus. We see it in John chapter one. He looks at Jesus and he says, behold, the lamb of God, who's come to take away the sins of the world. Peter, who got to spend time with Jesus, who got to listen to the teachings of Jesus. John tells us that all the things that are recorded about the teachings of Jesus, we don't have them because there's so much. But we see some of that unfold in the letters that these guys wrote in Paul and Peter and James, John's other letters and and all these other things. We get to see some of these other teachings come out. And and, and Peter writes this letter. It's in 1 Peter chapter 1. He writes and he says, you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. It was not paid with mere gold or silver because those lose their value. But he says, it was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless, what? Lamb of God. And look at what he says. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. Mind blowing, right? It was according to God's good plan. He knew man would mess up. He knew man needed a plan for their restoration, for their purpose. A guy that mentored me some in ministry, and I loved this man. It was a man by the name of Bishop Tony Miller. He would he would talk about this scene, and he said, "Can you just kind of imagine the Trinity there together talking and God?" saying, look, man's going to mess up and we're going to need a plan. And Jesus saying, Hey, I'll, I'll surrender my will. I'll surrender my will. I'll go and I'll be the one that gives his life to save the people. And the Holy spirit looks and says, okay, you, you do that. And I got your back. I'll raise you up. Now that's not in Bible that tells us that. That's just the man's mind trying to think and put our mind around what is happening here in this Godhead, in this Trinity, and and, and, and shaping this before the world began. And And Peter says, but now in these last days, he has been revealed for your sake. And then he says this in verse 21, for God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He's your example. And listen to what he says. He says, you must follow Hold on to that word in his steps. Go to Second Peter. Uh, uh, he never sinned, nor did, did he ever deceive anyone. Okay, yeah, we're in Second Peter. Two. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. Right? The, the, Peter's showing them the words of the prophet are coming through through Jesus. Peter, a man who lived and and followed Jesus, listened to the teachings of Jesus. If that man who followed this guy, who saw him die on a cross, who saw a living Jesus after his death, writes this and vouches that Jesus Christ is the one fulfilling the words of the prophet Isaiah. I'm going to go with that, okay? And then he goes on, he says, he personally carries our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and alive for what's right. By his wounds, you are healed. And then watch what he says. Once you were like sheep who wandered away. 
In other words, you guys couldn't continually follow God. You had a problem continually following Yahweh. He says, but now, because of Jesus, you can turn to your shepherd. And you have turned to your shepherd, who is the guardian of your soul. See, Jesus knew what he was going to have to face. This is, the, this is the amazing thing about Jesus as the Lamb of God. He didn't waywardly follow his way to the cross. Jesus knew what he was facing. And he willingly went towards the cross. He knew what he had to battle. He knew what he had to face. He knew that he was going to be go through this torturous, brutal, grotesque, violent, publicly humiliating death. But more than that, he knew that the wrath of God because of man's sin was going to all come on him. And he was going to take that wrath once and for all for a penalty so that our souls could be redeemed. For everyone, as Jesus told Nicodemus, for everyone who would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and did that for that purpose and resurrected, your soul can be eternally saved. And he willingly went that way. And he knew it. He knew it was going to happen. Look at what he told his disciples and those he was in the crowds listening to him. Luke chapter 9. He says, the son of man, talking about himself, must suffer many terrible things. He'll be rejected by the elders, leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He'll be killed, but on the third day, he'll be raised from the dead. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, I know what I got to face. I know what I've got to go through. I know what's about to happen. And you need to realize this. It's that my kingship is not going to lay out the way you think it's going to happen. I'm about to be unjustly killed but there is a purpose. It's all according to God's good plan. The purpose is unfolding, but don't think you don't have a responsibility in this, Jesus says, because watch what he tells the crowd next. Then he said to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways. You must deny yourself. You must take up your cross daily and you must follow me. He doesn't tell them, oh, you know, becoming a Christian is all about just saying that prayer and then just living however you want to live. There is a, there is a call and a purpose and an act in following Christ. When we understand the sacrifice that the high priest became, when we understand the sacrifice that this king made, that the spotless lamb of God was, when we understand that sacrifice, we should understand what our response should be in following him. We're called not just to accept his sacrifice, not just to appreciate the mediation of Jesus between us and God, but to follow him with our life. He doesn't just become an add-on to our life. 
He doesn't just become a part of our identity in the fact that, yeah, I'm a Christian. He is our life. The whole purpose of this Christmas season is not just to give us something to feel good for a little while. While we celebrate the season and have fun giving gifts and take a sleigh ride and travel somewhere singing jingle all the way. There is something deeper to this. And Jesus says, when you understand it, it should change how you respond to it. There's a pastor by the name of Adrian Rogers. He's passed away now, but this pastor, he made this comment. He said, the Lord doesn't want you just to dedicate yourself. He wants you to deny yourself. There is a difference there. To deny yourself means that you completely deny yourself. (laughs) Your will, your desire, what you want. This is what Jesus did in the garden. He prayed, God, if there be any way that you can take this cup from me, take it. I know this is the plan. If there's a plan B, let me know. (laughs) But then he says this, he says, not my will, but yours be done. If Jesus had to do it, we have to deny ourselves. We deny our desires. We deny our selfish tendencies. We deny the pride and we push it down. We remain humble. But don't think that to deny yourself is to deny any kind of enjoyment in life. God doesn't want you to be a Scrooge. He hasn't created you to be a Grinch. The Grinch before his heart grew three sizes that day, right? That's redemption and restoration. He wants you to enjoy. Paul wrote a letter to his protege, the one he was mentoring, Timothy. And he told him, he told him in, in chapter six, he said, God's given you everything that you have for your enjoyment. He gives you all your needs for your enjoyment. Jesus says, I've come to give you life and give you life more abundantly. I want you to enjoy life. So that's not what denying yourself is about. Denying yourself is realizing there's something bigger than you. That's what denying yourself is. So Jesus says, you need to give up your selfish ways. You need to deny yourself and then you need to take up your cross. That was not a picture that those listening wanted to hear or to see because to take up your cross meant something bad. But Jesus is telling them, you've got to take up your cross. In the same way that I'm about to take up a cross, there's a cross you've got to take up. Because there's a cross of sacrifice that you have to take up. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon said, said, there are no crown wearers in heaven who were not cross bearers below. To take up your cross is, is to crucify that sinful nature. To do what Peter says, to realize you can be dead to sin. In other words, sin does not have to control you. This started from the very beginning God tried to warn when Cain and Abel were fighting. He tried to warn. He says, sin is crouching out the door, waiting. Don't let it master you. 
That's what sin wants to do to us. But when we take up our cross, we're taking something that says, I got to crucify that desire to sin every day and say, I want to follow God and I want to walk by his spirit. But to take up your cross is also to understand Jesus did that not for himself. He did that for others. To take up a cross is to understand I'm taking up a cross every day to do what Jesus said in his new command when he gave his disciples to love one another. I'm going to do what I need to do in this life, not just for myself, but for others. I'm going to take up my cross. I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to give up my selfish ways. I'm going to take up my cross. I'm going to do it daily. Every day is a new opportunity to wake up every morning, realizing, as as the scripture tells us, that his mercies are new today. And today is a new day for me to, to, to put aside myself and to live this life for him. To take up his cross and to follow him. Because that's the whole purpose we do it. We deny ourselves, we give up our selfish ways, we take up our cross and we follow him. The call to be a Christian it's not just a call to a prayer. It's a, that is a part of it. But it is a call to follow. It is a call to give your life to following him. And that takes us full circle. Back to the fact that we are like sheep. And we need someone to follow. And that's why Jesus came. He became our shepherd who we can follow. And if we don't deny ourselves... And take up our cross and follow him. We're going to end up denying Christ. As we close, I want to remind you of a story, an account uh, that Luke tells us about. In Acts chapter 8 is where we see it. It's an account of an Ethiopian eunuch. He was riding in his, I guess, chariot, his wagon. He was on his way back home. And he was reading from the prophet Isaiah. And he was reading the prophecy that we read earlier, Isaiah 53. And he's reading this passage and another disciple of Jesus by the name of Philip, he comes walking by and he hears this eunuch reading this passage from Isaiah, this prophecy. And so Philip stops and he asks him, do you understand what you're reading? And so the eunuch begins to ask Philip. He says, who is this prophet talking about? Is he talking about himself? Is he talking about someone else? He's not understanding everything completely. And so Luke tells us that Philip, beginning at that passage from Isaiah, began to tell the eunuch about Jesus. Why? Why Jesus? Because he was the one that it all pointed to. Everything in that history of the nation of Israel, it was all pointing up to that night that this baby would be born, to the life that this child would grow up to live, the teachings that he would take and give and reframe everything that they had grown up knowing. Ultimately, pointing to his death and resurrection. That this king 
this high priest, this spotless lamb of God would do, not just for the nation of Israel, but even for you, an Ethiopian eunuch, and even for you, every person in this room, every person you know, every person that's come before you, every person that will come after you, what Jesus did was for everybody. And Luke tells us, and they came up to this body of water and the eunuch says, what's stopping me now from baptizing from being baptized in the same way that Jesus was baptized to symbolize and to say to everyone that I am allowing my old life to be washed away and to rise up in a new life with Christ. What's stopping me? And Philip says nothing. You can begin to follow Christ today. And so the eunuch made a decision right then and there. I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to take up my cross like Jesus said, and I'm going to follow I'm going to follow his teachings. I'm going to follow his way. I'm going to live my life every day to represent him, to honor him. He is my joy. He is the one that I adore. He is my heart. He is my affection. He is my desire. He's the one I want to give it all to. And I want to reflect in this life. That was the Ethiopian eunuch's response. That's been the response of millions throughout the years since the time of Jesus' death and resurrection. What has been your response to the birth, but not just the birth, to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to this king, to this high priest, to this spotless lamb of God who gave his life for you? What has been your response? Have you chosen? Do you live your life daily to deny yourself, to take up your cross and to follow him? Because that's what Jesus said our response must be. It's humbling. It's convicting. It's challenging. But man, oh man, is it life-giving when you understand what he's done for you. Stand with me this morning. Father, we just submit this this time to you and these closing moments together. Father, we ask that as we worship you, that you would turn our hearts and our affections completely on you. And not just in this moment, God, let this be a time. If we've never signified with our life that we are fully, completely giving our life to you to follow you, God, let this be that moment that we look back on, that we remember the day that we made the decision, man, I need to honor my Lord and my Savior, Jesus Christ, because of what he's done for me. He is my king. He's the one that stood in my place. He was the spotless lamb of God. I need to deny myself and take up my cross every day and follow him with all of my life. If you haven't done that, I encourage you to make a commitment, to do what Paul said, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. Follow him. Worship him as that Lord and Savior who was born, but honor him as your heart, your affection, your desire with your life. 
If you need prayer in any way today, we would love for you to reach out to us. You can go to our website, bwccanvin.com, go to our contact page. You'll find the link there to uh, request prayer or send us anything that you uh, would like to communicate with us today. Or you can also simply text the word prayer to 803-676-7566. And we will be back in touch with you to find out how we can be in prayer for you. God bless you. We hope that you have a great week.